So I, I pretty much was on five continents and I paddled every one of them. And it was just amazing to see rubbish in all of those. So when I got back, I was pretty frustrated with um, seeing that. And at the time, it was National Geographic that I put. Welcome to Mindful Business Founder, the podcast for fashion business founders seeking to build a meaningful and profitable business. I'm Liki Tang, and I'm here with you today to find out how mindful founders build strong businesses that deliver value to people and to the planet. In today's episode, we have the great pleasure to talk to Tammy Van Dange, a social entrepreneur based in Australia. Tammy is the founder and CEO of The Refoundry, which mission is to help Mother Nature by making great products from recycled plastics and to create a demand for this material that may otherwise go to landfill or into waterways. In the first part of the conversation, we discuss a lot about creating recycled plastic products for pets and how this development is related to Tammy's previous job as the CEO of an animal welfare charity. Tammy will share with us what inspired her to launch the Refoundry. She will also tell us about her experience from her crowdfunding campaign and what she learned along the way. Welcome, Tammy. We are very happy to have you on our show today. You're the founder and CEO of the Refoundry. Can you tell us what the Refoundry is? Uh, what's the mission of this company and what is the problem you're solving? And also, uh, tell us where you are located. <laughs> sure, Leaky. Thank you for inviting me to the show. Despite my American accent, I'm actually based in Canberra, Australia, which mm -hmm. is the nation's capital. A lot of people aren't They think Sydney might be the capital, but it's actually Canberra. Um, the Refoundry is a company I started not too long ago. And our mission is to help Mother Nature by making great products from recycled plastics. So we consider ourselves a social enterprise. And basically what we're trying to do is solve problems by using recycled plastic to keep it from going to landfill or into waterways. Okay, the first two products that you have launched are for pets. And so with the Refoundry, pets are now taking part into the plastic revolution. Why pets? Well, so that's kind of a, lo a long um, that, that, answer um, yeah. for you. So the first product line is called Stray No More. And mm -hmm. I purposely went down this pathway because I was looking for a product that I can make that would solve a problem. I, I didn't want to just make something out of recycled plastic that had no use for it. Otherwise, it was just going to end up in the landfill again. Mm. So I was purposely looking for something that needed to have a long life to it, and it needed to be durable, and it needed to have all the properties that plastic offer, but wasn't going to be used as a one-off cheap decoration or you know something else that wouldn't be used for very long. And my most recent job that I had, I was actually the CEO of a, of a large animal welfare charity and advocacy. Mm -hmm. And um, in that process, I obviously knew a lot about animals. And I knew that there was a specific issue with the fact that there was no products that were off the shelf to help pets from escaping their home or yard. Most of the products out there are actually created for babies or they're products that are um, totally DIY, meaning mm. that 
someone has to buy a bunch of chicken wire and they try to keep their dogs from digging or they, um, you know, they'll put up something that kind of works, but it was never fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. So I felt like there was a, a need and I felt like plastic, specifically recycled plastic could actually fulfill that need. And it would use a lot of plastic to do that, which is important because ever since the China and other Asian countries have, have quit taking a lot of the recycled exports from you know all over the world not just australia but america and europe as well that we don't manufacture a lot of things in australia we mm-hmm. we except for maybe food products that are really <laughs> the biggest products that we manufacture but because we're so close to asia we, we just don't have much of an industry here mm. and so if we don't create a demand for the plastic then more of that plastic now even more so than ever is just going to go to landfill and mm. I've been a paddler for many, many years of, of various boats and boards and such. And I can't help but notice a plastic whenever I'm paddling. And it doesn't matter where I'm in the world. You see it in the waterways. You see the wildlife feeding it. it you see it clogging up, you know, harbors and, and you see it come out of riverways. It, it just drives me mad. So my first product line was specifically for pets just because I saw a need. I knew that plastic can solve that problem. I felt like it was a good use of plastic, meaning that these are products that people would want to have for a long time. And, and it just seemed like a perfect fit because people know me for being in the pet industry. Okay. That's why you're giving a voice to the pets to be part of the plastic revolution. Yeah. Well, I mean, for the first product line, it just made sense to do that. Um, I'm actually looking at a second product line right now. And It, I could probably use your help actually, <laughs> because <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to source some material, um, recycled plastic, um, specifically polyester, to um, trial another product idea that I have. A totally different product line that aren't related to pets, um, but we just don't, like I say, manufacture anything in Australia. So everything I do, I have to go overseas to uh, talk to people for things like that. We we do manufacture some things. But mostly it is food products or a few industrial agricultural type products. So there are manufacturers here. And also there are manufacturers here in Australia that are former car part manufacturers. But that industry closed down in 2017. So they have a lot of excess capacity at the moment. So the, the, the manufacturing capability is here in Australia. It's just that we don't use it. You said that uh, you were a CEO of of um, animal welfare charity. And so when was it the, the moment you felt, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to launch my company and I'm going to launch the foundry. Was it a specific aha moment? You said, okay, that is it. Um, no, I, I had been at the organization for about four years by that point, or four and a half years, and I'd already uh, checked off pretty much everything I was given in terms of turning the organization around mm-hmm. uh, from a um, one that was near bankruptcy and had all sorts of issues to to one that you know we've refilled our our um, reserves and and it was doing really well and had a, a really good momentum going at that point. So I was getting a little bit. I guess bored, if that makes sense, because <laughs> it kind of it kind of was like the same old thing every year, in terms of the types of fundraisers we did and in the, you know, seasons where where we have to have certain messages for the animals and such. So I really had my heart into it, but the work itself for me was not 
as fulfilling because most of the challenges that we faced at the beginning of my term there were pretty much solved, or at mm. least in a really good place where it was time for me to move on to my next challenge. And so I actually took some time off because I mm. didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was a bit burned out just because it was such a high stressful job. And I traveled for a bit. And most of that time I was paddling. I, I was I was paddling kayaks and stand-up paddle boards and whatever Where I could did get you my go? hands on. I started in Hawaii um, because I had some family there. And then I went to South America. And mm-hmm. then I went to mainland US. And then from there I went to Europe and then back down through Singapore. And then part of the northern part of Australia before I came back home. So I, I pretty much was on five continents and I paddled every one of them. And it was just amazing to see rubbish in all of those. So when I got, it was, so when I got back, I was pretty frustrated with um, seeing that. And at the time it was National Geographic that I put a magazine uh, issue out that had a picture of all this of basically a plastic bag that looked like an iceberg and that's when they, they made this statement about how much rubbish was in the water and I decided I wanted to do something about it so I actually organized the cleanup of the, the massive lake that's here in Canberra because I just wanted to do something and I managed to get about 100 people at six different parts of the lake to clean up on this day and it, it was for this city, because it's uh, the national capital there, um, for Australia, it required a lot of coordination to get all the approvals to do this. But by land and by boat, we went out there and cleaned up about 80 bags of rubbish in three hours, which is pretty good, um, considering that it was just, you know, it wasn't very long that we did this. And this is mostly within the water or, or just on the shorelines. And then after that, day it just felt like well that was nice it was good educational message for the public to say you know this is not coming from another country this is all what we're generating it's all things that we're doing and and it was i guess for me it was like i want to do something else what can i do and i spent months and months actually trying to figure out what to do next because i didn't know the space i'd never worked in the plastic industry before i didn't know where I can add value as well. Mm-hmm. And so I had to tr- kind of just work through it and understand the process, understand the different types of manufacturing, understanding what was possible here in Australia versus other countries, understand how the recycling process works. And, you know, that took a while to get to that point. So, I mean, that's, that's how, I guess, full circle of the, how I got into the industry and now where I am now. That's very impressive. And it's a very bold move that you have made because, um, um, you know, launching a business, uh, create a new space in an industry you have no experience, no, no previous experience in. It's a, to me, it's a very bold move. So. Well, it's a scary move. <laughs> yeah, for sure, yeah. For sure. And especially if you're publicly known in, in this city, we probably have about 400,000 people in the city. And that role that I had was fairly public. So people were used to seeing me wearing a certain hat that aligned me with animal welfare. And to try to get past that, that point of, okay, you were successful in one thing. 
And before that, I was successful in IT. Mm. I was in senior roles in IT before then. Um, it was hard to get people to see me as anything else. And I'm still, you know, I'm still introduced as the former CEO of that charity because, you know, I'm still trying to get this business off the ground. Yeah. yeah. My heart was just really into it. And I just felt like there was a real need to yeah. do something and I felt like I can do it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, as I was preparing for this interview, I was Googling you on the internet and um, most of the articles I found are related to your role in this animal welfare charity. Even on the internet, you need to um, make the shift. Yeah, well, like, I mean, that's part of the reason why I have a podcast and I, you know, I publish the transcripts and I have a blog on top of that, not just for the business, but for myself. And, and that is to try to get my message out there about what I want to say, not what I used to do. And it's slowly, you know, I could see it slowly progressing up the, the search engine um, ranks as I add more content, but it is a long journey, especially because the things I was doing before got so much media publicity. Yeah. Um, one of the more famous ones that keeps popping up is the Chris, the sheep story. Um, mm. That's, that's actually something to think about, I guess, from your audience of fashion, fashionistas, perhaps, or um, fashion business owners, because Chris's sheep was a, a massive sheep that we rescued while I was there, mm. because it has, it was a merino sheep meant that it hadn't been um, sheared in like five years. Oh. And so we broke all sorts of world records about it. And literally, the poor thing just passed away a couple of weeks oh. ago mm. so but i mean it had a great end of life it just didn't have a great start and that particular story went viral so okay. i still i still get calls or i was still getting calls even up to a couple of weeks ago about him wow. um, because he had generates he broke a guinness world record from it the um yeah you know, the, the amount of media that that generated alone means that, that i'm forever tied to that story and it's it's you know, it's, it's, I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to be a part of that. But at the same time, from a business perspective, I've moved on and I have a different purpose now. And so I'm, I'm, I'm slowly working through that process of trying to recreate my, my public identity, which is it's a bit of a challenge. Thank you for that explanation. Maybe we could um, start digging into the hardcore of the business itself. Can you tell us a little bit about the launch of the Stray No More. Why did you choose the a crowdfunding campaign and what did you learn during that campaign? Okay, so I decided to go down an Indiegogo route for launching the first product line, or at least the first product of the product line. And the reason for that is that one of the biggest challenges about manufacturing, specifically injection molding for plastic, is the cost of the steel molds that's required to make the product itself. The capital investment for this one, or it's multiple pieces of steel, can it's almost always about six figures. So we're talking wow. over $100,000 investment to get this steel made, the steel mold made, so that you can make your very first product. You could do prototyping, but the prototyping cost me $7,000 just for one product. So obviously that's not a feasible product. Um, but the reality is there's a massive capital investment required to do injection molding. So 
I was trying to figure out how to fund the product line. And I had been talking to investors, but the challenge I had was that with the first product being so expensive to make that they wanted like half the company to invest that kind of money. And I didn't feel like that was the way I wanted to go because I just invested already so much myself from my savings. And I didn't want to give away half of my company before I've even made anything. Sure. So, and of course for them it's a huge risk. So I understand why they wanted to do it that way. So I decided not to go down the investment route. And I thought, well, it's a good way to market test a product is to see if people are willing to prepay for something. Now I was taking a huge gamble already because I was asking for 250,000 Australian dollars. That one is because the mold itself was more than half of that. And then I needed to pay for the first order to mm. cover, you know, the people that might pre purchase this product. And I picked of the three products in that product line I've already designed. I picked the one that I thought had the most uses meaning that it could be used for children as well. It was a, a frameless, let's call it a frameless baby gate. So it's something that you can move out of the way when not using it, it folds in and out of the wall. I actually got a patent on it because of the fact that it's so unique and it could be extended as large as you want or as small as you need it. But the reality is you're not gonna trip over anything. And it's also something that you can use on a door if you wanna leave in and out of a doorway and you don't want your pet to sneak underneath your feet out the door, which is what happens a lot, especially if you have children. This was a, um, the way it was designed allowed you to basically wrap the fence around you and lock mm -hmm. it in so that you can leave and the pet's not going to get out. So I went with that product first, but because the panels are so large, the steel molds were going to be about six tons of steel to, to have that made. And we needed to have it done in China and then imported it to Australia where I was having it manufactured. But the crowdfunding seemed like to me that this might be potentially a way to fund the molds. Mm -hmm. And so I went ahead and I said, look, I have to create all this marketing material anyway, if I'm going to try to sell this product. So if I do it as part of the campaign, I do a massive launch. If it gets up, it gets up. If not, then, you know, we'll reevaluate so was and it a pre-sales campaign? It was a, a pre-sell campaign. So I had okay. the prototype made. I um, was able to demonstrate the product properly because the pictures weren't giving it, was not explainable enough through the pictures. So I had to actually get the prototype made to prove that how it actually functions. Um, had received the patent, oh, the, the patent had been applied for and I've received the patent since then. Um, and then, yeah, we just basically put it out in the ethos to, and did a massive launch locally with my friends and just people that were interested in the product. And we had a lot of interest, but the interesting thing was about this particular product. For one, I've learned that Australians are not as comfortable as Americans are when it comes to crowdfunding. Okay. I don't think that they're nearly as comfortable in the concept and how that's done, unless it's like a technology product where you're naturally gathering people that are innovators. Um, I was trying to achieve a number that was quite large, which meant that I had to sell a pre-sell a thousand units to do that. Mm -hmm. um, another thing I noticed, but it wasn't until the night before when I was putting all the collateral onto the website or the, the um, crowdfunding website was that Really, if people want to feel comfortable and not buying more panels than they needed, even though I had some um, 
I had some out-of-the-box solutions for them, such as if you have a wall that looks like this, if you have an entryway that looks like this, if you have a hallway that looks like this, this is the one you should buy. But people were very cognizant of the fact that they can add or subtract panels if they wanted to. And so they wanted to go home and measure it, which meant that you took away the impulse purchase, which was mm. what I was trying to get, with someone to say, oh, yeah, I need that for my hallway. But instead, what was happening is that they said, oh, I need that for my hallway. I'll go home and measure it first. Mm-hmm. And of course, by that point, most people will end up getting busy with something else, especially if it's a product that they don't need. So I had a number of people that I tested the prototype with that were like, I want to buy it now. Why do I have to wait till March to get it? And then I had other people that said, well, I'm using this now. It's not great, but I'll wait till the product is available. And it, so it fell into a really interesting subsection of people that showed me there was a, a decent demand for the product, and it's something I could I could deploy worldwide, you know, into America as an example, mm. because it doesn't exist there either. However, it's they weren't comfortable with having to prepay for the product. So within the first 24 hours, I realized just then that. I didn't have any other orders within the first 24 hours from people outside of people from the launch, the people I knew. And within a week, the marketing was working really well. So I had thousands of people that were sharing it and looking at it, but people were not willing to purchase it that way. So I basically said long before the campaign ever ended that I knew that this was not going to work. And because at the launch, I had so many people interested in one of my other products in that line, which is a, a, a product to prevent a dog from digging in your garden or outside or your yard in general, I guess, that there's a lot of people that were really interested in that product. And I hadn't gone to prototype with that one yet. So I said, well, look, that one's a lot cheaper to make. What I'll start doing now is I'll start going down a path of market research to confirm that that you know, what I plan to make as a prototype is going to be fit for use. And so that's what I basically have just done in the last month. It's just I've shifted from trying to promote that one product that was already in prototype stage, but requires a significant investment to one that requires less investment, but will solve a different problem for pets. And and yet people, that seems to be one that people want to see first. So that's where we're at right now with the digging product. And that too is potentially eligible for a patent as well. Yeah. And so the digging product is called Dig No More. Are you going to launch a crowdfunding campaign as well? No, no. Because the, the molds are not nearly as big for that, mm. then I can actually get private investment into that particular product line for a lot less, which means that they don't want half the company. And there's also um, a series of grant rounds coming up with the local government and the the federal government here in Australia that may give me some of the funding that I'm looking for to do that particular product. So I don't feel like it's I, I can go both ways with this one. I can go full private investment. I can do partial private investment and hopefully get some funding through the grants or potentially I'll get enough from a grants that I can match it with some of my own savings to um, hold on to the ownership of the company. So like I said, right now we're in the design phase at the moment. I am validating the design with, with dog owners. It could also work with cat owners where they're worried about 
or with people that have cats are using their gardens as litter boxes. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a fairly diverse and versatile product, but I also have a patent I still got to apply for for that one. So there's just a bunch of things going on in the background. In the meantime, it's obviously more cash, more cash, more cash. And it is a bit challenging when, you know, I, I used to make a lot of money when I was in IT, which allows me to do these things, but it is starting to get harder to fund these projects. So I need, I do need to start considering bringing on partners right now. This was the first part of our conversation with Tammy Van Dent, founder of the Refoundry. Make sure you listen to the next part, where she will share even more learnings from her life as a social entrepreneur and advice you can implement right now into your business. Did you like this episode? If you enjoyed listening to Mindful Business Founder, it will mean a lot to me if you can share this with your friends who are also in their sustainability journey. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Bye-bye now.